Hi, I'm Ken Ledeen. I'm a tech entrepreneur. Hi, I'm Wendy Seltzer, W3C. Hi, I'm Harry Lewis. I'm a computer science professor at Harvard, and you're listening to Firewalls Don't, Don't Stop, Stop Dragons. Dragons. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Carrie Parker. Today we have episode 298 for November 14th, 2022. And I've got a really fun interview today. It's a panel interview. I've I've had, a, I guess, a couple times in the past where I interviewed, I think, two people. That's the most I had done at a single time. And we've got three today, three of the four authors of a book called Blown to Bits. And I'm still working through it. I've been so backed up on you know everything else in my life except working on the fifth edition of this book. I've got so many things I want to catch up on, but I read a good portion of this book and skimmed all of it uh, in preparation for this interview. And it's really great. If you are in a position where you need to understand the basics of technologies and the implication of a lot of those technologies. This is a fantastic book. It covers an amazing amount of ground and it's written for non-techies, kind of like, you know, my book. But it, it's just amazing how many different stories this covers. There's so many wonderful anecdotes in this book and it really covers so much ground. And we are just going to scratch the surface of that today. But it was a, a lot of fun interviewing Wendy and Harry and Ken all together. Uh, they've got great stories, and you're going to hear a few of them here coming up. And and before we start, I've just got to say, I I put together that clip at the beginning where they all said firewalls don't stop dragons in unison. They did not do that originally. I actually offered to see if they might want to try that, and they, they all said no. But hey, I managed to make it work through the magic of audio editing. So this book was written actually with, with the idea of trying to educate people in positions of responsibility about how the internet works. And it was at least somewhat inspired by... Ted Stevens, senator uh, on the Senate floor, talking about how the internet is a series of tubes and, and, and how that analogy was really, really pretty poor. And it, more, to, more to the point, it was quite obvious that uh, this particular senator didn't really understand how this stuff worked. He was talking about net neutrality. And so that was one of the things that spurred the creation of this book. But also we talk about how people, even in the computer science field, people that know software and hardware and, and computers and the internet tend to be very focused. You know, they get very siloed and they kind of lack a, a view of the big picture. And this, this book brings all that together. So anyway, I'm going I'm to ask these guys a whole bunch of questions around this and get, and you'll see that we get some really great answers. Before we do that, we, we rattle off, I guess, a few, a few terms I don't think we defined. One is the IETF or the Internet Engineering Task Force. These are the guys behind most of the specifications uh, that, that make up the web and, of, and followed right behind, of course, is the World Wide Web Consortium, the W3C. And Wendy is here representing the W3C. All of these groups are working behind the scenes to help make your Internet more compatible, more usable, and these days more private and more secure. All right, so let's not waste any more time. Let's get to our wonderful interview with Wendy Seltzer, Harry Lewis and Ken Ledeen. We've got three great people on the show today, and instead of me introducing all of them, let's let's start by going around the horn. And why don't you uh, introduce yourselves, uh, Harry? Why don't you start? Hi, I'm Harry Lewis. I'm a, a mostly retired professor of computer science. Been teaching at Harvard since 1974, and my claim to fame is that I've had both Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg in my classes. Oh wow! And hi, I'm uh, Ken Ledeen. I'm a technology entrepreneur, and one of my great claims to fame is in 1965, I taught Harry Lewis how to program. <laughs> and Wendy? Hi, I'm Wendy Seltzer. I'm a lawyer and technologist with the World Wide Web Consortium, where I am 
counsel and strategy lead. We seek to use standards to make the web better for the world. Fantastic. And the and the reason you are all here and the reason you have the thing you all have in common, as far as I'm concerned, is you are all co-authors on a book called Blown to Bits, which just came out with a new edition. And I'm uh, working my way through it right now. And it's uh, a fantastic book, covers amazing amounts of ground. And we're going to touch on a little bit of that today. So so why don't we all start with like, what, what brought you three together and, and why did you guys write this book? This book emerged out of a, a general education course that I that I taught at at Harvard, I, I, you know, back starting in around uh, 2005, in which I I pulled Ken into uh, to, to to help me with, and it, you know, and the motivation for that was just that you know I could see the the world was ch- changing drastically because of the explosion of digital information, and there were a lot of people who weren't thinking about the consequences, and they were letting others make decisions about the consequences. And Harvard educates a lot of great computer scientists, like the two dropouts that I mentioned, but, uh, you know, but also educates, you know, large members of judges and Congress people and others who are going to have a big influence on the world. And I wanted them to understand it. So I pulled Ken in because, you know, I've known Ken since we were in college together. And Hal Abelson is a co-author also, is an old uh, friend at MIT. And, you know, Wendy is uh, brings a whole set of uh, knowledge and skills that that neither Ken nor I nor Hal have. So the first edition of this book came out in 2008. So I'm curious to know what's what's happened since then that has most surprised you? You know, there are lots of things that have been quite a surprise. Many of us were involved in artificial intelligence back in the 60s. And then, it, as we know, there's a long AI winter. One of the big surprises is the degree to which AI has really risen to a point of prominence with enormous implications, and we'll talk about that later in this discussion. We had this idea that if programmers write programs, people can understand what the computer is doing, and that's not really true anymore. So that, for one, has been a really big change. In some ways, the pervasiveness of this technology at every level, it's amazing to see young kids be really technologically competent. So this has been we, we often talk about the fact that the digital explosion, which is part of the title of, of this book, was perhaps the most significant event since the creation of written language. And we're really seeing those implications in the world today. I, w- I would add to that. One of the things that makes this an important subject for people to understand in a way that's different from the way it was 25 years ago is that stuff works now you know in the in the in the days when i was learning about computer technology some of these ideas as ken has mentioned were in the air as possibilities but nothing really worked and there's (laughs) been such uh, and and therefore you had to understand how it worked because you couldn't otherwise you wouldn't be able to use it because it never really quite worked and did what you were supposed to, to think the technology has now advanced to the point where Yes, we've made it more, more usable by ordinary people, but the effect of it being so functional is that people no, no longer think of it as technology that they mm. can control or have any choices on. It's just there. It's just like, you know, it's part of the, it's like the interstate highway system. You know, nobody thinks about building the interstate highway system until you, you know, run into a section of it that's that's being repaved. And then you think a lot about the infrastructure, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? Right. So in computer technology, very often now we don't think about the infrastructure. We don't think about 
who's collecting the data, where it's being used, how it's being repurposed, and all of this stuff, because it's all so seamless now. And that's mm. a that's a change that's really uh, accelerated over the last decade. And, and Carrie, if I could add just one more. Yeah, I'm sorry, Wendy. Let me just, before I completely forget this idea, is uh, one of the things that I, I observed and Harry has talked quite a lot about is that scale changes things. And one of the things that we've really seen in the last couple of decades is that the amount of data that is stored and is accessible changes the kinds of things that can be done. And we see this in areas like language translation. We certainly see it in areas of privacy where so much information is available. I mean, vast amounts. Part of this is because the cost of storage is so low that that things that were conceptually possible became actually possible because the scale of the data changed dramatically. And if I could pick up on that, I think one of the things that continually surprises me is the effects of scale surprise us even when we're expecting things to change as they scale upward. And so, you know, I noticed that particularly in trying to understand the d debates around misinformation and it, its effects on polarization of, of dialogue, on electoral politics, on safety, that even as we realize that speeding up communications and expanding audiences will change the way we communicate, we still see quantum type shifts in the way the information environment behaves and asymmetries in you know, how to defend our democracy against that, how to defend our communities against misinformation or you know, poisoned discussion. Yes, absolutely. And uh, w one of the big things, obviously, that's happened since the first edition of the book was the Edward Snowden revelations. And I, I you know, I've said many times in the show how much it's affected me. I, I'm curious to know from from your guys' perspective, what do you think the impacts ha of that have been? I really thought, that, honestly, there would be more fallout from that. I thought there'd be more changes that came out of that. But you know, you know maybe they were more subtle. What What do you think has come out of this, good or bad? One thing I've seen is you know, it really affected the technical standards community and people working uh, in technology to see their tools and constructs being poked at as though they were Swiss cheese. Mm. It, it caused people in, in, in the standards bodies like IATF and W3C to go back to, to first principles. What can we do to secure our systems better? Prompted a lot more conversations about end-to-end uh, -end security, uh, making sure that we're not relying on technology in the middle of our networks to, to secure the communications, but that every participant can be uh, encrypting and passing encrypted blobs to, to the other end. Um, and so I think it spurred a lot of creative development and work to, to build more secure technologies uh, from the ground up. And that's given us a lot more of the building blocks for secure communication. What other impacts do you think that those revelations have had, like about on policymakers or or on legislation? We still haven't managed to get privacy laws really here in the United States, but has there been any benefits in that regard? I mean, some of these programs have supposedly been shut down. I don't know. What do you think? This is a very good question. And because the real question that 
I'd like to know the answer to, which I don't know the answer to, is how many con- more conversations now happen in the bowels of the intelligence and securities and military yeah. offices uh, in which someone says, yeah, we could do this, but you know, aren't there some issues that we ought to think about before we actually go ahead and 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 do it? Because there are some risks and some downsides, and you know, this would be hard to defend if it ever, you know. So, do people have those conversations more, or do they just have they just up their game at keeping things secret and making it impossible for people to carry stuff out of their contractors' offices <laughs> on on small memory devices? I don't right. know the answer to that question. Well, you know, law enforcement agencies and intelligence agencies claim that all these privacy enhancing technologies are making it hard for them to keep us safe. But you know, on the flip side, privacy advocates say that we're in the golden age of surveillance. With that as a segue, you brought it up. What what are the real answers here? Where how do we figure out how to draw that line? What how do we protect you know our citizens and yet respect their privacy? I, I want to just think a little bit about where the last question was left as we segue into this one because I've been uh, number one. I wonder whether some of the questions that you just raised about what what do intelligence agencies and law enforcement agencies do in their conversations to consider whether something that can be done should be done, that particular mode of thought should be applied really everywhere. And it's very hard to do, as Wendy pointed out, even people who are extremely knowledgeable about technology have a very hard time thinking about the implications of what they're doing. And I think we have to recognize that. We have to recognize that even well-intentioned people can get wrong you know, the implications, but those conversations really do have to exist. And the second piece is that my observation is that unless something is seamless to the point of invisibility, the general public doesn't do it. So we've known for a very long time that email is like postcards. And if you really want to keep it private, you should encrypt it. And hardly anybody does. You know, uh, we wouldn't have had all of the Hillary email issues if all of their stuff had been encrypted. But even in a context like that, where you would think people would be using encrypted email, they don't. And so it's very interesting that somehow pushing this back to say, those folks over there have to do it for me because I don't want to take any responsibility is an important factor in how we move forward. I would, I just want to say, um, this tension that you describe between the you know law enforcement and you know and and privacy you know advocates is you're quite correct is unsettled unsettled business i'm actually reasonably hopeful well i'm hopeful and worried at the same time but there does seem to be a moment here where for maybe not the best of reasons there is a significant possibility of some federal privacy legislation in the coming uh, in the in the next congress you know the reason unfortunately is that the 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 hatred of the tech industry is one of the few things on which the left and the right in america <laughs> seem to be able to agree mm-hmm. and so whether the the privacy legislation will be the 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 best uh, serve the country's interests the best you know remains to be seen but i am i am uh, 
you know, I'm proud to be a member of the board of Epic, the Electronic Privacy Information mm-hmm. Center, which is very active in in yeah. in working, you know, in working towards this. So I have some optimism. The discouraging note that I want to say at the same time, and there's lots of state level privacy legislation mm-hmm. going on uh, also, is that the current Supreme Court of the United States has cast some doubt on whether it believes that there is any constitutional right to privacy at all. And I don't know where else that thesis, which uh, became evident in the Dobbs decision, mm. you know, might rear its ugly head in in the context of efforts to pass privacy legislation. So, you know, I think we're in a state of affairs that where more than ever people need to understand and uh, and think and give give the give their voices to uh, what their concerns are. Computer systems are often viewed as cold and calculating. And, you know, are they less biased than humans when making decisions? Uh, And if computer algorithms do have a bias, where does that bias come from and how does it manifest? So I think computer systems are perhaps less likely to be capricious. If you feed them the same question, they'll come back with the same answer time after time. Uh, But they absolutely can be biased. And unfortunately, as more pieces of our environment get computerized, they are often filled with hidden biases. So the bias could be intentional, a programmer maliciously saying, uh, let's discriminate against a class of people. It could be a bug. The software just doesn't recognize something as a last name that uh, is in fact the last name of many people on the planet. And you know, I, I think most pernicious is the you know, biases that come in from sort of training on uh, historical data mm. that reflects a legacy of bias in our society. So a lot of what we see as computerized uh, now is systems built on uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence, where they're fed a corpus of background data and decisions made based on on that data uh, in the past and told now replicate those decisions. Uh, But if those decisions are reflecting a legacy of discrimination where uh, people of color were given longer prison sentences than white people for the same crime, or because of circumstances, they were more frequently arrested for the fact patterns that wouldn't have put a a white person uh, in prison, uh, then a system of arrest scoring uh, based on that data uh, will discriminate. Julia Engel did a wonderful uh, series for ProPublica analyzing some of this data and found these systems are used in judicial proceedings across the country and are are, are sentencing people of color far more to to longer, uh, more rigorous sentences than white people who've committed uh, roughly the, the same crimes. So just because the computer said it uh, doesn't mean it's right. And we need to you know, uncover the, the biases that have gone into training and you know, actively try to, to, to counter. So let me stop you there. So I don't think a lot of people are aware of this. So, and this is covered in the book, computers are used in sentencing guidelines and even setting bail in a lot of cases. Is that, is that correct? It, it, please tell us about right. that because I, I bet a lot of people don't know that. Uh, well, so m- many 
prosecutors will use these systems, you know, thinking it's fairer to to use a database and a, a computer system that can analyze you know, lots of cases than to rely on the, the, the perceptions of, of one or a few people trying to uh, offer uniform sentences. Um, but then they'll rely on databases or companies who claim that their sentencing algorithms are trade secret. So when the defendant asks, can I see why I was recommended uh, a long sentence, they the, the, the company intervenes to say, no, I'm sorry, we can't share that because then somebody might go and copy our commercially valuable data. Well, we, we need our systems to be analyzing the uh, people's right to freedom as more important than competitively sensitive data. But also we need researchers to be able to uh, investigate those systems, not not just by probing it from the outside, but picking them apart to uncover these biases and uh, and make them more fair. Well, and that leads into my next question, and then I'll come to uh, Ken and Harry for some uh, input on this. That, And that is that a lot of these algorithms, especially computers used to be predictable. I mean, it was, I'm a software engineer. When I tell a computer to do something, it'll do it, even if I told it to do the wrong thing. And But at least like it's predictable, and I can explain why it did what it did. But in, in the age of AI, and particularly machine learning, the we are feeding a bunch of data. We are training computers to do things, and it's kind of figuring them out on their own. And then we don't really know how it came up with those decisions, but we somehow trust them. So that has a lot of really weird implications. And one and one of the ones I'd like you to talk about from an anecdote perspective is the higher view scenario. Why is it that all of a sudden this new thing called machine learning means that computers aren't predictable necessarily anymore, and we can't explain why it made a decision? And then what effects that's having on society? So higher view is a uh system of first round interviews as it were for uh for in in hiring practices and um you you answer some questions into a uh into a uh and and record yourself being you have a video recording made of your answers to these questions and then one of two things happens this is uh, the, at the time we wrote the book i maybe the practices have changed since then the higher view would either just share the the video with a, mo- a number of companies and so to save you save them the expense of flying you to three different locations to be to be interviewed or would run the video through their proprietary algorithms and on the basis of that decide whether you were worth interviewing in person based on some inferences about your audio and video behavior matched against what they or their client companies had decided were successful and unsuccessful employees who'd been hired in the past. And so, you know, the the the, the opportunities for bias on the basis of historical exclusion are, you know, are are very plainly absent. I mean, some of these this is not the higher view system, but you know there have been other examples. There are actually you know published papers uh, where some machine learning algorithm has been applied to lots of photographs, and they supposedly you know successfully could discriminate people who were criminals from people who weren't criminals, and it it turned out the algorithm had just learned that all of the non criminals were wearing neckties or something like that. That it was not it was just an artifact of the, mm. you know, of the database that they were that they had trained the the systems on. 
So these these are very serious issues, and, it, and not just in. Uh, and, and I'm glad we've moved off of law enforcement and talked about other things where you know the harms are less obvious. I mean, okay, I you know you apply for a job, you don't get the job, you're not entitled to the job. They can hire anybody they want, you know, within you know broad uh, non discrimination criteria. But the problem is that because these systems are proprietary, as Wendy said, we have no way of knowing what kind of unfairness may have been embedded into them by their historical practice. And, you know, I'll, I'll give one other examples on this. I have, there's a noted computer science scholar whose first name is Latanya. She's African-American. And she noticed that when you uh, type in her name, and I think I've got this story correctly right, you know, you were more likely to get, you know, a an ad popped up that said, hmm. you know, would you like to get the, the criminal record on Latanya than if you had uh, typed in, uh, you know, uh, Harry? And, you know, but again, is this really true? It's very hard to know because it's all embedded somewhere in the in some recommendation algorithm that's embedded deep in the system. So we have to make some progress on a honoring the fact that individuals have rights and B, that businesses have obligations. And 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 C, you know, that certainly where individuals directly meet the criminal justice system, you know, that's probably the most important thing. But these other areas that where we're acting more as consumers and employees and so on are also are also very important and they're extremely non-transparent right now. Just to add one, a couple more things. First of all, I just want to make sure that we recognize it's not, as Harry said, not just the criminal justice system. It might be organ transplant recommendations. It might be medical diagnoses. It might be all sorts of things that are more consequential than whether you get a first interview at the age of 21. It might, they might be really life altering. And the other comment is that it's not merely the case that some company doesn't let you see inside their black box. The very nature of machine learning is that we don't know how to look inside the black box. I have a 12-year-old granddaughter, and if I say to her, why did you do that? She can't tell me. She just says, well, I just did. You know, she says, because. And if we take that as the model, if we say machine learning system has simply accumulated all of this experience and is now making a decision based on its accumulated experience, and you say to that system, why did you do that? It's technical answer might well be because, you know, well, my weights told me to. But a, a real answer is it's just going to say because. Right, and that—that's scary. <laughs> like, even as a it software is. engineer, it's—it's—it's it's, it's unsettling for me that I can't explain why the computer just did what it did. And and I should yes, I I want to uh, just follow up and and emphasize the point just made. Very often, because of the primitive state, I mean, it functional but theoretically primitive state of machine learning. The issue isn't even that the company won't tell you how it how its software came to that decision. The company itself has no idea how it came to that decision. Exactly. It's embedded, you know, the fourth layer of the neural net had a had a weight of 0.746 instead of 0.747. But how did it get there? Well, after analyzing, you know, a billion videos, you know, that those that's just the way the parameters came out in this in the in the middle of this big big neural net. So 
there is work being done on explainable AI and, you know, how, you know, how to, how to do this and so on. But, you know, there's lots of money to be made on systems that, you know, don't have any such safeguards or, or, or explanations built into it. They just work for reasons nobody quite understands. Yeah. And, and you, you might have created a system for a perfectly benign purpose. You know, I create a system whose only purpose is to make sure that my users use it more because I really want them to stay there. And then I discover that the system on its own decided to tell young girls about losing weight. I didn't create a system to harm teenagers. I created a system to just keep my users there more. And I can't even look, another reason you can't look in is because that system is constantly evolving, just like my 12-year-old granddaughter. And I have no way to say on January 18th, why did you do something? Because it's gone. Anyway. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's, yeah, that's crucial. The internet, what it was originally conceived as ARPANET back in the day, you know, I, I, I don't think any of the people who were there at the time could foresee, no matter how prescient they were, where, where things would end up today. But it's certainly around the time of the web when it came around. I think that there was definitely this kind of utopian idea that it's going to be this egalitarian, you know, level playing field. It was going to be world spanning. It doesn't respect borders. It would bring us all together and share, you know, the wealth of human knowledge. Nevertheless, we have still managed to install gatekeepers and, and there are still mechanisms built into the web and like net neutrality. This was a topic that was huge years ago that for some reason I don't hear much about anymore. So, so your book just talks about this a little bit. Tell us a little bit about net neutrality, where that's at now uh, and the concept of gatekeepers. How, how do we, what do you mean by that? How, how, how is it that parts of the internet are less accessible to others? I'll start with the the underlying principle uh, of network neutrality, uh, which was that uh, is that that service providers should you know provide connections to all traffic equally and not discriminate based on you know who's paying them more or uh, their political preferences for some traffic uh, over others uh, and should provide uh, a neutral infrastructure for uh, communications activity and. The, the discussion has gone in a few different directions uh, from there. You know, at the physical you know, uh, and network communications protocol uh, layer, we have pretty good access to anything we might be seeking out. There's pressure on service providers to block criminal traffic, both traffic of those trying to use the net to, to c commit crimes and frauds, uh, or those trying to disseminate uh, information like child sexual abuse material, which um, is not lawful anywhere. But access to, to, to lawful traffic, lawful content, lawful communications is, at least in the United States, in pretty good shape. Elsewhere in the world, we you know, see experiments like the the, the zero rating proposals uh, and projects that uh, companies like Facebook now Meta have offered to provide free access to Facebook traffic and more expensive access to to other non Facebook traffic that shapes the the views of of what people are able to 
to see shapes more of their activity toward uh, the, the the Facebook platform and changes what they're able to to converse about and uh, how easily as well as how easily others are able to compete with Facebook to offer uh, new services and new sources of content or community or entertainment. Another angle uh, of of discussion is often, you know, should there be uh, application level neutrality? Should app stores uh, be required to provide access to all comers? And how is our view filtered by, you know, what applications Google or Apple permits in their app stores? That's a that's a big debate right now with the app stores because Apple there's a lot of fo- uh, focus on trying to make Apple open up its app store kind of like Google did with its Play Store. So there's that aspect absolutely that 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 has a gatekeeper aspect, and then there's this notion of the splinter net where countries are trying very hard to impose borders on the internet that we were never there before, you know, and these technologies that we can come up with that might allow for suppressing, you know, CSAM material now may be used in another country like China or other countries to suppress information for Uyghurs or dissidents or things like that. Talk, talk a little bit about the political aspects of, of how the internet is being trying is being balkanized and being and broken up. And it's how some countries are trying to make a different internet for their country. I'll just confirm that this is the case. And I, I mean, it's, it's, it's very sad for those of us who came of age during that, you know, the internet utopia as, as, um, you know, as unrealistic as it always was to have a, uh, the notion of a borderless, a borderless internet. But I've have some personal experience with this. I have, you know, good friends in Hong Kong and I used to visit Hong Kong physically all the time. And I used to communicate with my friends over the internet all the time. And now there, there are things that I don't dare talk to them about because I know that my communications are, uh, you know, are being filtered. I can't mm. point them to a link and tell them to go read something because if they click on that link, you know, the, the, the party bosses will, you know, will find out what they're doing. So yeah, the, the internet is a tool and yes, it can be used for the free and open dissemination of information, but there's nothing intrinsically in the technology that says that's the only way it can be used. And particularly as we develop technologies for what we in liberal democracies would consider legitimate information control, you know, detecting and child pornography and and going after the people who are disseminating it, you know, those same tools can be used for detecting and tracking down the people who are uh, who are talking about Tiananmen Square in in Hong Kong, you know, and so it is a um, it's a it's a geopolitical it's a whole set of geopolitical issues. Terry, you brought a a whole bunch of things together in a very nice way there. We talked about gatekeepers. One of the things that Harry's story relates to directly is in many ways, uh, Google is the ultimate gatekeeper in in the sense that if you can't find it, it doesn't exist on the Internet. And we all know that when we do a Google search, you know, we're not seeing what's on the Internet. We're seeing what Google tells us is on the Internet. Uh, Harry's story relates directly to if I do a Google search for a particular topic here and I do the same Google search in Hong Kong or Beijing, I will see very different results, right? And so that's a different form of gatekeeper. That's not, in a sense, somebody not letting it in, but saying, 
you know, in maybe directly or indirectly to Google, you have to shape your search results in the following way. And finally, we see that that uh, we have to think a lot about what are the implications of things that we're doing in a particular way. Because very often things that we thought were benign turn out not to be benign when they get used slightly differently or when the scale is different than when we imagined or the speed is different than what we imagined. Well, the other thing I think that brings all this together is that in a lot of ways, because of the algorithms that are in place on the internet, we become our own gatekeeper, which is because we build bubbles. We build filter bubbles because Google and Facebook and the other of these companies are trying to give us more of what, we, what they think we like. And what I what I think blows a lot of people's mind is, and it, I tell people to do this experiment if they can, is take your laptop and take their laptop, sit next to each other, and <laughs> both of you search on the same thing and tell me what Google tells you. I, I think okay. one other piece I'd add to this conversation and another of the, the changes that we've seen since the first edition of the book um, is the rise of content moderation as you know a feature of uh, a lot of our networks first the, the rise of social networks and uh, these sort of group curated conversations you know, whether it's Twitter or Facebook or TikTok or YouTube and you know th those you know have a lot of infrastructure underneath them of uh, the the platform owners you know moderating to you know whether it's to, to keep off you know uh, information that's harassing or terrorist content or content that's promoting violence or misinformation. And you know, lately we've seen you know, a lot of political fighting about whether those decisions are politically motivated or, or, or neutral. And I don't think there's a, a clear answer to, to that, that they can't be purely ab absolute uh, but the platforms would look a lot different and would probably be unusable if they weren't allowed to uh, engage in some moderation, if they weren't able to keep out the spam and keep out the promotion of violence. Uh, we'd have you know, no way to use them because we'd be drowned out by that. So you know, should that be done by private companies? Should that be done by governments? Should that be done by user-driven collectives? I think we're still in the stage of experimentation where th there are different communities with different rules and ways of setting those rules. Yeah. Let, let me, let me also, I just want to throw in another thought here that based on, uh, Carrie, your, your question. So one of the things which our book, you know, wants people to understand is that Words are designed uh, to produce metaphorical images in our minds. Which it's the only way that we can use technology is by relying on certain kinds of metaphors. But the metaphors are very misleading sometimes. So, you know, my favorite is the tool that we use for web searching and looking at pages, which is called a browser use a browser to view pages, right? That's what, you know, that's how the internet works. Well, first of all, you know, you're not browsing, you're sending a request and then somebody is sending something back to you. If somebody else has, asks for the same web page, you know, they don't necessarily get the same page back. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that may be what you want. I mean, maybe you want yours in French if you're sitting in France. So there, there are good reasons why the functionality should be some degree, you know, customizable. But it's 
you know, you give the example of two different people, you know, of the same person using two different computers. You know, I use the example in my mind of using my computer after my daughter has been using <laughs> my computer for a while. And all of a sudden I'm getting advertisements for shoes with stiletto heels. And, you know, and I, I insist that that is not a result <laughs> of my web browsing habits, but, you know, but Google doesn't know that. Right. Right. <laughs> so, and, you know, and, and, you know, so pages and browsing, and viewing it's not you're not viewing you're viewing the screen but you're not viewing the the thing at its source the the, right. the source is at concocting something to to send specifically to you and you know sometimes that's exactly produces exactly the results we want and sometimes it's uh, results in you know what Shoshana Zuboff calls surveillance capitalism, right? They where so much information has been collected about you that people are making lots of money by customizing things in ways which are not necessarily in society's best interests. Right. I mean, I wonder, Carrie, whether your listeners are aware of just how much information about who you are, where you are, what kind of browser you have, what version of the operating system you're running on, you know, whether you've been typing mostly with your left hand or your right hand, is available every time you click on something. You know, sometimes yeah. that's made visible to them. Most of the time it's not. Yeah, it is. It's actually astounding the amount of information that is captured and, and something a lot of people I don't think are also aware of. There's a lot of technologies built into websites that could do what they call replays, where from a marketing standpoint, the companies want to see how people interact with their with their website. But what that means is someone far away could actually go back and replay everything you did while you were on that website, including where your mouse went, where it hovered, how long it took, how you scrolled, because some of it is, well, what ads do they get? you know, attracted to, but that's also really just super creepy, <laughs> you know, and I don't think people I, I want understand. to tell a story. Go ahead. I want to, I want to tell a story, Carrie, as you're a software engineer, and maybe this is a story that, that, that I, I learned about an, another major uh, technology company. Uh, it's, it's not Microsoft and it's not meta. I'm not going to say which, which, which one <laughs> it is, but an engineer who worked at this company said, you know, he learned something on, on, his, on his first day about how they designed their website. He said, you know, the, the CEO instructed them about, about how they decided about which new features, how, how to implement new features. So, so somebody comes up with a bright idea that say this, this website's Gonna, this web, this would work better if we knew what our customers, how many children they had, or something like that. And uh, so, so let's let's implement, you know, a uh, you know, do all the machine learning to figure out how to customize the product delivery based on you know adding that piece of data to what we know about the customer. And the CEO says says, okay, if you come up with an idea like that, the first thing we're going to do is to do what to do a four hundred four test. Okay, what's a 404 test? 404 is the code that you get back when a pig when you try to access a web page that isn't actually there. A 404 test is you just implement the button and you you, you say, tell us how many children you have, and you deploy that to 0.001% of the installed page views, right? And you know, if nobody pushes the button, you're not going to go ahead and then bother implementing the feature. But if the importance of understanding the whole business is driven by figuring out what information about us is useful 
in terms of increasing the company's profits. I mean, that's the sort of, I mean, it's capitalism. It's the way capitalism works, right? We generally yeah. want that, but, but it now involves collecting such amounts and such minute detailed information. I mean, frankly, they can probably infer how many children I, I have just by right. looking at my browsing habits. So as I'm not even sure you need to ask the question anymore. Right. So just, I just want to take this one step a little further uh, because we're talking about what changed since the first edition of the book to now. And when the third edition of the book comes out in 2050, um, <laughs> And people are doing most of their browsing using their eyeglass-mounted browsers, whatever. Remember, it, it, somebody will be collecting eye movement. Somebody will be looking at you know what your facial expression was, whether you seemed pleased, not just whether your mouse lingered. You know how long you paused in front of some object on the store shelf. So all of these things that we talk about are impacted enormously when the volume of information and the types of information increase exponentially. And, and computers understand human affect. They understand all sorts of other things about your behavior. Data collection that you're referring to, Ken, is, is the only way, the only way that the metaverse can work right, right? Only if those goggles that you put on to enter the metaverse can see where you're looking on the, on the screen and can, can tell whether you're happy or unhappy at something, you know, otherwise, you know, you're not going to be able to interact with the other avatars in the, in the, in the metaverse. So it's actually essential for that product, which is a current product to work properly, to collect exactly the sort of data you're talking about, about eye movements and facial expressions and god knows where that data is going and what else is being done with it and and this will be our you know ne next example of didn't somebody consider the implications <laughs> when they implemented this highly desirable feature that we all wanted i i'm desperate to be able to take a photograph without moving my finger you know this this kind of thing that that will really sell me on some product and so they implement that thing and now all of a sudden we have some potentially nefarious consequence. Well, and here's where things, if, if you really want to get dystopian, this, this is where things to me will get really weird is when we get, when the feedback comes to the point where I can tell how it's reacting based on how I do things. What about when I start changing my own habits? Like I, I learned to not look to the left. I learned to not blink as much. I learned to not smile certain, you know, I start changing my behavior, my facial expressions to alter the feedback that I'm giving, you know, and it oh. comes full circle. One place where people are getting that feedback already is the uh, rise of automated proctoring programs. When when people are taking exams and are forced to opt into surveillance of their environments uh, in order to prove that they're not getting any outside assistance, uh, students are reporting that you know they they have to you know engage in almost scripted behavior to tell the system that they are paying attention and that, you know, anyone whose behavior falls even uh, a little bit outside those norms, say they have a condition where they have to use the restroom a little bit more frequently, or, you know, to help them pay attention, they need uh, some aids to fidget with, that the system interprets that as cheating and marks them off. So uh, do they have to 
conform their behavior to what the computer expects of them? Uh, or can we make these computerized systems change to respect the diversity of people who are using them? Yeah. And, and just while we're on a completely dystopian bent, if today we think the internet consists of that which Google tells us, what will it be like when we're wearing goggles or eyeglasses and what we see is what Meta tells us the world is? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, I've thought about that quite a bit. All right, a couple more questions here before we go. And one is a little bit of a departure, a little less, maybe a little less personal, but I, I still think it's a fascinating topic because we talk about bits being blown to bits and and how everything now is bits. Everything is stored as bits. And for eons, we have stored things on parchment and carved things into rocks and painted things on cave walls that have managed to survive all these years. And now, all of a sudden, everything is bits and bytes and it's it's perfect it, it will never degrade it, it it's it's copyable perfectly and yet we're it seems like we're one electromagnetic pulse or still solar storm away from losing all of it what what, what are the implications to the fact that now everything is is bits well harry has a there's a fabulous story in the book we'll let harry relate it about laser discs well yes so so in 1086, that is to say, more than 900 years ago, a book called the Doomsday Book was written in England, which was a compendium of demographic and 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 uh, property information about every household in uh, in England. And you can go today and flip through the pages. Well, you can't because they flip through the pages. They have it open to one page, but you can see the book is bound and is sitting in the British Museum and is perfectly as readable today as it was. And on the 900th anniversary of the Doomsday Book, the British government produced a an up-to-date version where they had aerial photographs of everywhere in England and they produced a you know a complete census of the country and they you know recorded this for for public access because this was you know valuable information that would be of general interest to the to the public to be able to use and 15 years later it could not be read at all because it was put on 15 inch video discs and you know the company who made 15 inch video discs went out of business and they they literally had they had to go back and go back to the source materials and try to figure out what data structures had been used to compose this in order to recover i think they finally did recover it and transfer it onto some other medium but you know i think this is an area where the uh, national institutes of standards and technology and nist has done has done some work to talk about you know survivability and refreshing for the future but you know when you see the impact of war in uh such as uh you know hot wars as the kind that we're now you know witnessing in europe you do have to wonder whether you know the priority that uh, we may in a in times of peace and prosperity be able to put on preserving digital information as technological media change you know whether that will be as big a priority as you know preventing people from starving and and uh, and so on so i i think it's a very serious question yeah, and you mentioned you mentioned the format thing because think about who has CD ROMs anymore, who has you know floppy drives anymore, and and yeah. I I struggle with this because I've got family photos that are digital at this point, either that I've digitized because I've scanned them or 
or, or whatever. And just every so often I find that, oh my gosh, it's an old format or family videos. I find it's an old format that's like not supported. I can't find a player to play it anymore. And so I have to search out uh, some specialized software to convert it and hopefully it'll do it properly. And this is where we're at now. There, we don't have, a, I don't think we wouldn't have a digital archive standard. And we can rely on cloud services, but you know, cloud services are not our own property, right? I mean, if we have Google store ourselves, you know, what happens when Elon Musk buys Google or whatever, <laughs> you know, I mean, you, exactly. you know, we laugh, but, but we see small examples of this, you know, my wife recently retired from a job that she'd had at, for more than 40 years. And, you know, uh, six months later, she said, you know, oh, what was, was so-and-so's phone number? And that, you know, that was all stored on the office computer. And she lost access to that, to that computer and all the data, data behind it. It's whole piece of her life seems to have disappeared because, you know, she didn't download everything. She probably wouldn't have been allowed to download everything, you know? Yeah. Right. Or, you know, or the fact that it's, it's quite easy to just look in Wikipedia to see a list of dead word processors. And realize that yeah. even if you could find a floppy disk reader, you can't find WordPerfect 3.8. Right. In order right. to read that, because bits inherently have no meaning. And bits only have meaning when they are consumed and repurposed by some piece of software. And if that piece of software no longer exists in any form, then the bits that you happen to have preserved perfectly have no significance. Right. Yeah, you'd almost have to preserve a computer. They're running the software plus the, the data to try to access it down the line. And I'll just add one more force that's often, you know, coming in up against the, the preservation and emulation to, to preserve availability, and that's copyright. Uh, mm -hmm. That a lot of the copy protection systems imposed or the, the measures to protect copies for the copyright holder, you know, go against the the archivist's principle of right. you know, lots of copies keep stuff safe. Right. Uh, make copies available in various formats so that we can find them later uh, runs up against the, you know, the, the, the copyright holder's demand to restrict access so that they can charge for every bite. All right. So one more question before we go. And this has been amazing. We could talk for hours and hours and hours. I've got so many more questions, even some I didn't get to. But let me just go around the horn one, one last time uh, before we go and give you a chance. Uh, tell me what you think are some of the most promising developments that are that are coming and, and, and what worries you most. So looking ahead as, as futurists and as technologists and given what you've seen so far, what are you looking forward to and what, what are you worried about? All right. I'll, I'll take that in, in just in a few words. I think the most promising thing that I see is not a technological development, but it's a social development and it may be a United States development and a European development more than it is elsewhere in the world, but it's the recognition of privacy as a fundamental human right. And the, the need for the governments to figure out some way to protect individual privacy at the same time as making it possible for the data of the world to be used for constructive purposes. So I'm, I'm oddly optimistic that societies will get a piece of this figured out, or at least make some progress on it in the next decade. And what are you most worried about? That they won't, <laughs> or, that, or that the courts in the United States will declare that any attempt to control what private 
industry can do with our data is uh, somehow colliding with with other uh, rights which corporations allegedly have to exploit our data. Absolutely, Wendy. How about you? What do what do you what do you look forward to? What 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 worries you? What keeps you up at night? I'm I'm still excited by the the, the promise of the democratization of technology access. That there's greater push to make the 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 programming and the tools available to all, and that as you know, uh, computer access and devices are cheaper, more people can join the the online community, uh, and we can learn from a whole lot more experiences and uh, more creators and creative people. And you know, what, what worries me is the fate of democracy, uh, that you know, we are seeing more moves to, to control our, our communications and you know, more, more attempts to, to subvert that and the, the the filter bubbles or you know bubbles of of information spheres uh, leave many of us not even able to talk to one another across the divide. And if democracy depends on being able to persuade, first we need to be able to to reach those who would be persuaded and try to convince them. And as we fragment our, our communications platforms and uh, the information we, we get from them, we may not have that chance. I will last and certainly not least. Ken, what about you? Well, well, to maybe take this in a slightly uh, different direction, I, I, I'm delighted to see the progress in what technology is able to do. I, I enjoy it. I look forward as I get older and my grandkids want to take the car keys away. I look forward to having a car that can drive itself. Uh, but the thing that actually troubles me looking out, perhaps not as far as we might imagine, is that the capacity of technology to do an enormous range of what constitutes meaningful work today may radically alter the nature of our society as more and more and more of the kinds of things that people get paid to do get done more effectively by machines. And we we have really not come to terms at all with what our society will be like when such a large percentage of work goes away. Well, Ken, Harry, Wendy, this was a wonderful talk. Again, we only scratched the surface of the book. There's so many more great things in there. So I encourage listeners to check that out for sure. It's got some wonderful, wonderful stories in it. And thank you so much for coming on and sharing your views today. Thanks. Thank you. That was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed talking with those guys. We we talked off air a little bit too and had some fun discussions. And of course, I, I captured some of that for the patrons. You guys will be getting that extra bonus content on Thursday as usual, including an interesting story about Mark Zuckerberg at the beginning of Facebook. We'll also talk about the extent to which, you know, AI may be replacing entire occupations. And, and we've been saying this for years about machinery replacing jobs and computers replacing jobs. And of course, to some degree they have. Uh, but honestly, a lot of that has been you know, more, I don't know, blue collar or manual labor jobs, maybe in terms of certainly for, for machinery. But now with the advent of AI and machine learning, 
it's not uncommon now to be replacing entire realms of, you know, prestigious white collar jobs. Like my grandfather was a radiologist and a lot of the work of radiology today, finding tumors and things like that is being done by computers. We'll also talk about the use of AI in the military and, you know, killer drones and killer robots. It's the only reason we really don't have much more of that than we do today is policy, right? I mean, we're, we've decided that we want to keep humans in control of drones that are capable of killing people, but there's no reason why we could not turn them loose to some other AI algorithm. Anyway, we, that's some of the bonus content that the, the patrons will be getting on Thursday. Couple other quick notes before we go. Uh, I was just interviewed on a, another podcast on the Weird Marketing Tales podcast, and it was only a little bit about marketing in my particular case because I'm not a marketing guy. But we did talk about you know privacy and how that might impact things like analytics, and just talked about security and privacy tips in general. So if you're interested, there's a link in the show notes you can check that out. Uh, the reason I I knew the guy who did this was he actually helped to revamp my website. So anyway, he invited me on our show, and I of course said yes. Next week will be my best and worst gift guide for 2022 with Black Friday right around the corner and the Christmas shopping season on the horizon. That's always a good time to be thinking about, you know, what gifts may or may not be good. And at least in terms of security and privacy, because a lot of us probably don't think about it in those terms. And that's why you've got me. And after that, of course, will be the huge, colossal 300th episode of the podcast, 300 straight weeks of Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. And I've already recorded my interview with Bruce Schneider. It was a lot of fun. We talked about all sorts of different subjects and he had, and he had some really, really interesting perspectives. And he's already committed to coming back for the 400th episode. So we've definitely established precedent. All right, everybody, that's it for this week. Take care. And until next week, as always, stay safe out there and don't get caught with your drawbridge down. <laughs>